pleased and honored to be introducing to you today our very special guest that we'll be talking with about her new book. I've been speaking a little bit about her um, thus far during this hour, but uh, let's go in a little bit more. She's on the line with us, and uh, we'll be bringing her in to the conversation, of course, in just one moment. Who am I talking about? Well, that's, of course, Jean Bishop, and it's really a humbling experience to have her with us today. Um, It feels a little awkward to even use words in thinking about what she's endured. Um, So let's just go into it. Her, Her book is called Change of Heart, Justice, Mercy, and Making Peace with My Sister's Killer. And the book begins with the tragedy the murder of her, her sister Nancy, along with Nancy's husband and their unborn child, in their home some 25 years ago. In her dying moments, Nancy wrote a message in her own blood at the crime scene, a heart shape and the letter U, last words of love. When the killer, who was a local, uh, was a local teenager, was arrested for the murders, he denied responsibility for the crime and showed no remorse. After the murder was tried, convicted, and sentenced, Bishop determined to forgive and then forget him. She became a public defender, an outspoken opponent of capital punishment, and a supporter of the sentence her sister's killer received, juvenile life without the possibility of parole. All the while, she never once spoke the name of her sister's killer aloud, never tried to engage with him. There's a lot more to be said here in the description about this extraordinary work and, of course, a lot of courage that must have gone into it. But since we have Jean with us live, we'll go into it with her now. But I do want to emphasize that um, in the end, it says, the book is a story of moving beyond mere forgiveness to the deeper waters of redemption and grace. I am so moved by that line. And um, I'll tell you a little bit more. Maybe, Jean, you can share a little bit more about other aspects of your path. But I just want to warmly welcome you here to Community Justice Talks on KHEN. Thank you so much for being with us. I'm so glad to be here. Why don't we go into our discussion today, Jean, um, by sharing perhaps on that note. Uh, I'm just, like I said, I'm so deeply moved by so many aspects of, of what you've done here with this book, which, again, is going to be released here in uh, March, which is next month. It's available for pre-order at changeofheart.wjkbooks.com. That's, again, changeofheart.wjkbooks.com. You can pre-order it now. Um, let's Let's start out, if we might, about... Um, perhaps the you know the the end of the journey of of this book as a message of going beyond forgiveness to the deeper waters of redemption and grace. Um, if we can, can we start out with that? Of course, yeah. When my sister's killer was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, my mother was sitting next to me in the courtroom, and as the sheriffs were leading him away. And he was taken back into the lockup and the door swung shut. She said to me, we'll never have to see him again. 
And I was glad of that. I had forgiven him in my own mind and heart. I hadn't told him. But I did it not for him. I did it for myself, you know, to unchain me from the burden of, of hating him. And I did it for Nancy, for her memory, because she never would have wanted her legacy to be one of hatred and vengeance. And I did it for God because I felt that my own faith, which happened to be the Christian faith, compelled me to forgive. But that was the kind of forgiveness of, you know, wiping him off my hands like dirt. I forgive you, and now I'm leaving you Mm -hmm. in my dust. This isn't about you. It's not for you. And now you can rot in prison, and I'll move forward in my life, you know, working against gun violence and capital punishment and, 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 you know, not thinking of you anymore. That's not redemption. Mm-hmm. Redemption is where, as you'll you'll read in the book, you know, I'm challenged by a, a man named Randall O'Brien, who's a pastor and an academic, that it is also about him. It is about the offender. It's about what happens to them. God loves the person who took my sister's life every bit as much as God loves me and wants for him to come home. Mm. Wow. You you start out, um, you offer a beautiful uh, glimpse into the book on the website for those who are interested, um, and I'm sure you will be after hearing from Jean today, um, the compelling nature of that moment when you went into the visiting area of the prison where your sister, sister's killer was being held, um, again, without parole, life sentence. And what did the guard say to you? What, um, what, what was that experience of filling out the, the visitation form for you? And can you frame how you open up this book? A little oh, bit yeah. for everyone, I, please. I, I, I open with the, you know, pulling into the parking lot and my heart kind of beating and, you know, coming into this guardhouse to, to sign in. And you fill out this series of boxes with your name and your address, your date of birth, the, the ID number of the inmate you're visiting. And the last box to fill in, the very last thing they want to know is visitor's relationship to inmates. Actually, I think they even used the word offender, visitor's relationship to offender. Mm-hmm. And I stared at that box and I thought, I didn't even know how to fill it out. I mean, until that moment, my relationship with him could only be described him, murderer, me, murder victim's family member. And I realized that in this visiting that I was starting to do with him in that moment, that that was going to change, that we were going to be two human beings um, and and I, I I didn't even know what to write, so I looked at what other people above me had written, and it was you know uncle, girlfriend, you know, it's a friend, and so I I wrote the only true word I could think of, which was visitor, because I thought well I'm not his family, and he isn't my friend. I mean we've never met. This is our first time ever speaking, and so when I wrote in visitor, the guard scowled at it and he said. That are, are you a family member? I said no, and so he wrote in the word friend. Um, and it has been. How did that make you feel? Journey. How did it make me feel? I thought, I thought, I, I don't know if that's what I'm being called to be. I don't think that's what I am now. And I knew going in that it wasn't going to be this easy, hallmark, made-for-TV movie kumbaya moment where we would throw our arms around each other and cry. It was going to be this 
slow, messy human process of saying hard things to each other, hearing hard things, asking tough questions, saying words of, of kindness and consolation sometimes. I mean, it was... It, it has been, each and every time I've gone to see him, there's been some new extraordinary epiphany, some wonderful moment, and I'm so grateful for every minute of it. And I'm grateful mm. to him for his courage in being willing to sit down with me face-to-face mm-hmm. because that must have been an awful hard mm. thing for him to do as well. This is this is just so moving already, and we're only a few minutes into the conversation. If you're just joining us, um, this is Molly Rowan Leach, and I'm hosting Jean Bishop today. This is Community Justice Talks on KHENLP Salida 106.9 FM on the dial, and hopefully we're um, streaming to you wherever you are in the world at khen.org. Welcome. It's great to have you here with us today. Uh, this conversation is also po- going to be posted as a podcast available for free download at restorativejusticeontherise.org. And you can also access it and pass it on to people um, as you're interested. And encourage them to visit this website, which is changeofheart.wjkbooks.com. What what do you think, Jean? Um, you're describing your experience of, of visiting him, um, and maybe just adding, how long ago was that that you first stepped into the visiting room to meet him face to face? I believe that was in March of 2013. Wow. Okay. So so this we're we're talking um, that it you carried. You carried with you, was it for 20-some 20, 20 years um, the, before you met him in person, right? Um, is yes. that true? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, of course, when I did meet him and when I met with his dad and had this moment where I could express my forgiveness and they could, you know, we could have this human moment of connection, I asked myself, why didn't I do this years ago? Mm -hmm. Why didn't I unburden myself? (laughs) I mean, I think that's what Nancy was trying to tell me with her and all of us with her message of love in the first place, which is don't wait. Mm. The message that was written in, in her own blood on the wall as she died. Yeah, it was actually on the basement floor. Her husband was shot first execution style in the back of the head and, his body slumped to the floor, and um, she tried for a while to call for help, and the only way she could, she tried banging on a metal shelf in the basement with a tool. Um, and I think at some point she must have realized that she was dying and that no help was coming, mm-hmm. and that was the moment that she dragged herself over to her husband's body and wrote this message. And when I learned about that later, when the police told us that detail from the crime scene, my mother said, it's true, isn't it? Love is stronger than death. Mm. And what what the truth of that tells me is that my hatred wouldn't affect this young man at all. It would do nothing. Uh, but love can transform his heart. And you, you yourself have an extraordinary track and path of service. And I just want to share with our listeners that Again, um, you provide service as a criminal defense attorney, activist, and, of course, as an author. 
and um, you've spoken around the United States and the world in support of gun violence prevention, abolition of the death penalty, forgiveness, and the role of victims in the criminal justice system. And your written work has appeared in the HuffPost at CNN.com, the Christian Century, the Chicago Sun-Times, Chicago Tri- Tribune, and many other, many other print, print and online publications. And you've been featured in several documentary films, including Too Flawed to Fix, Deadline, and The Innocent. You uh, graduated from Northwestern University School of Law, it sounds like, and a a recipient of its alumni award for public service and practiced law with the Office of the Cook County Public Defender. That's in Illinois. And I just want to say that uh, there's some extraordinary praise for this new book, including from John Grisham, and he says, Change of Heart is a Tragic Story of Senseless Violence, horrific loss, and in the end, forgiveness that is astonishing. I kept asking myself, as a Christian, could I be as strong and merciful as Jean Bishop? And he says, I have my doubts. Also, Sister Helen Prejean, Maurice Posley, who is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author, Robert Darden, Greg Ellison, Governor George H. Ryan, Governor of Illinois from 99 to 2003, and, and others have praised this work. And it, it seems very um, upright now in our collective cultural dialogue um, with this whole issue of justice and what it entails. Of course, there's been so many people uh, voicing and um, working towards uh, uh, you know, at the abolition of the death penalty, the understanding that uh, of the importance of forgiveness, but perhaps more than ever in this moment in time, as a cultural consciousness and awareness, it appears that we are really coming to a point of something. And I'm wondering if you could comment on where you think we are culturally um, and societally, as well as systemically, because you are so astute um, in you know the actual on the ground systems aspects of things as well. That's such a wonderful question. I'm so glad you asked it because I think that we are at a moment of great hope, but also great challenge. The hope part is that I think we've come, as you said, to a real widespread recognition that we lock up too many people in this country for too long for offenses that sometimes are nonviolent offenses. And so we have voices like Michelle Alexander's pointing out the causes of a lot of this mass incarceration. We have people like Brian Stevenson writing about the need for the role of mercy. And we have people like Professor Mark Osler, who I write about in my book, who's leading the charge of trying to have commutations of sentences in the federal system, people who are sentence under harsh old laws that have since been changed and yet there are people languishing in prison serving those old sentences and that we need mercy applied on a massive scale through the use of pardons and commutations. So there's, I think, at one point this recognition that we need to do something even by um, people on the very conservative edge of the political spectrum. Mm -hmm. Very hopeful signs from places like the Heritage Foundation Groups like Right on Crime that were, you know, 
co-founded, I think, by Newt Gingrich. People, you know, like the Koch brothers writing in the Wall Street Journal saying, we're, you know, we're locking up too many people. It's too expensive. It's bad for society and communities. So I think that's the hopeful part. The challenge part is that these people are still languishing in prison under these overly harsh sentences. We still have the death penalty in the majority of U.S. states, even though, you know, six states in the past six years have abolished it legislatively. We still have juvenile life without parole sentences that are mandatory on the books in states like my state of Illinois, even though that's been struck down by the U.S. Supreme Court. So we have a lot to do to make sure that this moment that we're at is not squandered, that Mm -hmm. we're actually acting in a way that can restore these people to society instead of leaving them locked up. Well, and it's voices like yours that help us to make that bridge, to build that bridge. I feel like we're building a bridge as we step forward together, even though we may not know exactly how it's going to land and play out. We know that that there's a better way of, of conducting ourselves. And my next question is really maybe a, a difficult one, um, and it has to do with why, why we seem to be so stuck in punishment um, and how you might see as a Christian woman um, and, and what a wonderful um, religion Christianity is and based on such beautiful principles and yet um, is, is misdirected and used in ways to justify punishment at times. So mm-hmm. can, can we talk yeah. about that aspect of, uh, I, I actually, <laughs> I have to segue for a minute, and um, there's a wonderful professor from the Eastern Mennonite University who was just published yesterday at Open Democracy, um, an article uh, that unpacked the theology behind why we believe punishment is okay. And so right. it's on my mind right now, and I'm, I'm looking right. forward to hearing your take on it, if you would. You know, this whole journey has, you know, brought me close to people from a variety of viewpoints on the spectrum of punishment and how the idea of punishment intersects with faith. There are some people who feel that the punishment that was given in exchange for the lives of their loved ones In other words, there's a murder that happens, their loved one's life is gone, and what they have left, all they have left, their justice representing the life of their loved one, is this sentence. And there is this family that I met here in Chicago whose young uh, son and brother was killed at the age of 13, an honor student, just senselessly gunned down in the driveway of his home while he's playing basketball on the 4th of July weekend. And they said, if you take away this sentence, you're you're taking away all we have left of of my brother. You know that you're you're obliterating the justice for him. And so they weren't as focused on is this offender rehabilitated? Is he redeemed? Is it possible to restore him to society? They were thinking whether he's sorry or not. He took the life of my family member, and I will, now I want him behind bars forever. There are people on that spectrum who feel that if you do something so heinous as as some of the, you know, crimes that were committed by juveniles in my own state, I'll give you one example. There was a guy named Johnny Freeman who, at the age of 16, lured a five-year-old girl up to a vacant 14-story apartment in the uh, housing project in Chicago, and he raped her, and then he pushed her out the window. 
and she managed to hang on to this windowsill with her tiny fingers and was screaming for her mother for help. And he walked over to the windowsill and pushed her again to her death. She plummeted 14 stories to her death. And there are some people who argue that if you do that, you are so depraved that you are irredeemable, that we're going to decide at the age of 16 that what you are capable of is so awful that we can never trust you to walk free again. And so there's there's that idea, too. Um, what my faith tells me is that no one is beyond the redemption of God. No one's beyond the forgiveness and purpose of God. And the reasons that I cited, you know, against the death penalty for so many years, I think apply equally to these merciless lock them up and throw away the key forever sentences. You know, I am on the verge of tears in our conversation today at the depth of your courage and the the stories that you're sharing. Thank you so much. I just want to acknowledge the courage that it must have taken for you to write this book and and to share your story at to at such a level of intimacy for for everyone to read and and I'm I'm confident <laughs> As with uh, the the extraordinary praise and um, pre-publication praise that it's received from so many incredible folks, that that this book is going to make a deep mark for for many many people in this world. And so, thank you for that, Jean. Oh, thank you. That that's my hope. My hope is that it'll be a, a voice in this really important conversation we're having. And I'm so grateful to you for the way that you carry on that conversation day in day out. I'm I'm grateful to you. Mm. Thank you so much, and I'd, I'd like us to, to continue in um, our conversation in the direction tying into what, what we uh, were just sharing, um, how that leads into the aspect of the other, um, in this case, of course, called the, the offender, and in your own personal experience, and I'm so looking forward to being able to, to read the entire book, and I'm, I've already pre-ordered my copy, um, <clears throat> but can you share with us any insights that you may have gained along this, this courageous path of meeting up with your sister's killer, and did anything reveal itself to you in the process that wouldn't have been revealed if you wouldn't have been courageous enough to meet with him and willing? Oh, yes. I had so many unanswered questions about what happened that night that Nancy and Richard and their baby were murdered, April 7, 1990. Why had he picked them? Did he know them? Had he ever encountered them? Why did he pick that home? Why was it done in this kind of senseless execution style where, you know, at the crime scene, nothing was taken. It, it was... You know, $500 in cash that my sister had gotten from cashing her paycheck earlier that day was strewn on the ground. Not a cent of it was was taken. And so it was almost as if it was meant to be seen as an execution and not a burglary gone bad or something. And so I had all these questions, and he very courageously answered all of them. And sometimes before revealing something particularly difficult, he was sensitive enough to say to me, you know, are, are you sure you want to hear this? Is this going to be hard for you to hear? And I told him, yes, I want to hear all of it. I wanted to know 
everything I could about you know, these last moments. And I'll give you one example of a wonderful thing I learned uh, that was so healing for me to hear. You know, Nancy was the chatty, talky, <laughs> outgoing type, and Richard was this gentle giant, mm-hmm. six foot three, mm-hmm. former athlete, the strong, silent type. Mm-hmm. And I always had it in my mind that when they walked through their front door and saw this three fifty seven Magnum revolver pointed at them in the dark, that it would have been Nancy speaking up and saying, you know, please don't hurt us, you know, trying to negotiate. And what I found out from their killer is it wasn't Nancy, it was Richard, that he heroically tried to save my sister. He kept proposing ways that this young man could tie them up or cut the phone cords or drop them off someplace, you know, in the deserted area or some way that he could get away without hurting her and said, please don't hurt my wife. She's expecting a a baby. And it was so wonderful for me to know what a hero he was at the last and how Nancy knew in her last moments, you know, how valiantly he was striving to, uh, to protect and save her. Did, did he have, um, did the, did the killer have a story about his own life? that he may have shared with you that perhaps lent to some understanding as to, I mean, it's unthinkable that anyone could ever do such a thing, first of all. But was there something that happened to him, possibly, that that he shared with you? You know, it's really interesting. That was one of the things I wanted to know because he lived a few blocks from where I live now. I mean, I have two young sons, and they're growing up in the very same community where he lives. And what I was trying to understand with him is how I can trace this arc from this little boy who grew up in this, you know, safe, comfortable suburban community on the north shore of Chicago, how to trace the arc from that little boy to a 16-year-old who could put a gun to the back of a grown man's head and pulls a trigger and then shoot his pregnant wife. And I'm still putting together that story. There wasn't any traumatic event. There wasn't any, you know, um, abuse, you know, anything like that that you could say, aha, that's the, the reason that, you know, he turned into someone who was capable of this. Um, you know, it, it really sounds like more to me like it's he felt very poor in a very affluent area and so he started doing crimes like burglaries stealing things check kiting scheme bicycle chop shop you know he figured you know if he didn't have enough money legitimately that he would try to make it illegitimately and he describes what happened that night as you know him going in attempting to not only burglarize their home, but, you know, to wait until they came home and then take their wallets and their cars. And and when I kind of challenged him on that, you know, how nonsensical that sounds, because you'd have to kill them then if you encounter them. His explanation was, you know, I was a 16-year-old from, you know, Winnetka, Illinois. I didn't know what I was doing. I was a really bad criminal. Um, And so that that is the story that, that he's told me. Let's let's come present now to 
the, to what you're doing now, of course, with the book, but also are you and he doing anything as far as speaking together, or is that mainly you going out and sharing your collective story? Um, he's not able to go out and speak because he is still... Well, right. Oh, yes, like of course. <laughs> yeah, right. That's and, pretty and impossible. So, <laughs> you know, we're we're in the middle now of an interesting time, though, and that is because um, the U.S. Supreme Court, in a case called Miller versus Alabama, declared unconstitutional part of the sentence that he's serving. He's serving a mandatory life sentence for killing my sister and her husband, but he's serving what's called a discretionary life sentence for killing their unborn child. And that means that, you know, at least half the sentence is serving. He probably needs to be resentenced and will probably be back in court and the judge will have to consider, you know, a host of factors and then decide whether he should still get the sentence. So we're really kind of engaging in the legal system, you know, even as we speak. Mm-hmm. And, that, of course, that was a silly question I asked because I, I know what it's like to try and communicate um, with people who are incarcerated. It's pretty impossible. Right. So yeah. it's not like they can Skype or um, use technology to add their voice to the conversation. Right, <laughs> and it's, it's funny that you say that because in the one of the prisons where he was held, you used to be able to Skype with people, with visitors, and that was taken away. Hmm. Well, let's turn the conversation for the last segment here, Jean, to the aspect of solutions that are formulating in our in our country at a very rapid rate. Um, you mentioned some incredible folks like Brian Stevenson and Michelle Alexander, both who who have been on this program, as well as Van Jones. Um, you you spoke of Newt Gingrich a moment ago, and he and Van Jones are working on an initiative that will be launched just as your book will next month called Cut 50. And the goal is to reduce our prison population by half in a decade. And that's a monumental goal um, and an important one because we house over 25% of the world's prisoners, even though we have about just under 5% of the world's population. And for all the other reasons that we're speaking about today. So uh, I want to talk specifically with you about your take on restorative justice. And I want to start out this last segment with a question for you about the importance of honoring a victim or victims and perhaps some of the resistance that there might be towards restorative justice, especially when um, it's unclear what that really is. Can, can right. you speak to that, please? Yeah, I, I love the question that you asked about honoring the victims because that is paramount in, in my mind. And I think that one approach towards that is to say that the only way to honor the life of the victim is to have the harshest possible punishment for the offender. Um, years ago, there was a New Yorker magazine article written by a federal judge named Alex Kaczynski who said that in every case that he could, he always voted for the death penalty because he heard the tortured voices of the victims crying out for vindication. And I remember reading that and thinking, my sister Nancy doesn't need the death of another human being to be vindicated, to vindicate her beautiful, shining life. It stands completely unassisted in its beauty and its mm -hmm. integrity and its power. And to kill in her name would dishonor her memory. 
And I think that we can say the same thing about something as merciless as a life without parole sentence for a juvenile. To say that, you know, no matter how sorry he may be in the future, how rehabilitated, how remorseful, that we're going to punish him endlessly and forever and he's going to die in prison no matter what he does. That dishonors the memory of someone as loving and um, kind as my sister Nancy was and her husband Richard was. And it will do nothing to honor what her life was about. How? Why do we have that sentence then? I realized, and I write about this in my book, um, I come to this conclusion, right, in, in chapter 8 of the book, I talk about coming to the conclusion that the reason that we have sentences as, you know, harsh as death sentences or life without parole sentences, we're trying to come up with something as grave and majestic and enormous and momentous as as a human life. And what I found is not that, you know, the taking of the life of the person who killed Nancy would would do justice. The only justice really is for his life to be found, to be restored, for him to be redeemed, for him to get what he took and to go out into the world and be able to do all the good that Nancy and Richard could have done. That is what my hope is as as a family member of, of three murder victims. What were some of the challenges, um, if you would share, that were that you found during the process of wanting to uh, move towards that connection, um, that meeting with him initially, and how does the the current or past justice system prevent the true honoring of victims? Well, I think that the justice system assumes that all victims want the harshest possible sentence, and. The problem is that in many cases, you know, with the mandatory sentences, the victims didn't even get to have any input into what the sentence would be. I mean, we were not even allowed to do victim impact statements at the sentencing because the defense attorney argued quite properly and correctly that with a mandatory sentence, there is no aggravation and mitigation proceedings where a court will consider testimony pro the sentence or testimony con the sentence, he had to impose the sentence upon the moment of conviction. When you have the legislature setting what the sentence is instead of a judge, it removes the voices of victims from the process. And I think that the lack of opportunities for restorative justice in most jurisdictions, including my own, means that people like me kind of have to do it on our own, by ourselves. I mean, this this is the made-up seat of the pants restorative justice that I'm doing. And and by voicing that need um, and and building that movement more more deeply with one another in our localities, we can link up with folks that are leading the way. Uh, like for example, here in Colorado, we have uh, a restorative justice pilot project that's um, already got new legislation that will augment it. Um, that's making uh, changes with those who are working within the system. People who, um, like DA Stanley Garnett up in Boulder County, say that um, restorative justice is not just a panacea, panacea excuse me, panacea, panacea, whatever. Um, it's you know, it's it's something that works. It saves money. It saves judicial processing time, and um, cost savings analyses. Uh, although there's nothing completely official out on the board, 
um, would be monumental, a report on how much time, both um, human time and just literal cost time, is saved in, mm. um, in diversion and in, a, in restorative processes, as well as, of course, the more important um, value of human time and of human, um, of human value, of valuing each other, as you were saying earlier so beautifully, of, that, that we are all God's children, that we all have a place in life um, of equanimity. And, um, yes, yeah, yeah, and and I and I see so much hunger for what you're describing out there on all sides. Mm-hmm. I have met prisoners who said, "Oh God, I wanted to reach out to my victims' family members and say how sorry I was, but initially my lawyers told me not to, and then later on I thought, well, they'll be traumatized by hearing from me. What if they don't want? What if it upsets them more if I reach out to them?" And I have parents of perpetrators who say, oh, we wanted to reach out to the families of the victims, but we didn't know if that would, you know, just make them angry or think that we were being self-serving because we wanted something. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, offenders who said that they wanted to apologize, you know, and and all these people who are kind of hanging back out of fear because there is no way that they can, you know, say, well, there's this process of restorative justice, and sign me up for that. I want to engage in that. And then you can put people together, you know, who who want to do that. Right now, without that mechanism, there is so much yearning and longing, and yet, you know, um, hesitance and, and all of these opportunities lost. And what what would you say about the aspect of forgiveness as it relates to restorative justice um, in in the sense that there's a lot of misconceptions from all sides about what restorative justice really is. Um, some people think it's a synonym for forgiveness. And what, what do you have, have to share about that? You know, I think that they don't necessarily have to be synonymous. I think it's more a, a, a dialogue, right? Um and I'll tell you a wonderful example I heard um, from a program coming out of New York where the woman running the program said that without restorative justice, with these cookie-cutter mandatory sentences, it's like going into a restaurant and being given a menu and you open it up and it shows that you can order a hamburger. That's it. Nothing else, right? That's what a mandatory mm-hmm. sentence does. It says crime victim for the punishment for what happened to you. This is what the offender will get. He's going to get a hamburger, right? And so restorative justice means you open it up and say, well, you can have this instead. You can have soup. You can have a salad. You can have, you know, a Coke. What the victim in one case that she talked about wanted was for the guy who had pointed a gun at him and robbed him to have to meet with him and his two small children. And the victim of the crime of the armed robbery looked into the eyes of the guy who pointed the gun at him and said, you see these two children? They're what I thought of when you put that gun in my face, how I would never see them again, how they'd grow up without a father. I'd miss their high school graduation and walking them down the aisle when they get married. And this is, you know, what flashed before my eyes, the loss of these precious children, you know. And he said that that meant more to him than another five years in jail for that guy to have to hear that. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that that had a bigger impact on the perpetrator 
than another five years in jail would have had. It was healing and empowering for the victim. The victim didn't say, I forgive you, but he got to have that moment of connection and understanding with the offender. Do you feel hopeful that our systems will be matching up more deeply in shifting towards the um, ability to facilitate and, and give capacity to that um, human connection when even the most unthinkable occurs in cases where it's wanted? I hope so because, you know, and, and I think it just has to do with courage. I've been doing a lot of lobbying for reform of juvenile life sentences, you know, here in Illinois recently and then obviously before then for decades until we succeeded in abolishing our debt penalty in Illinois in 2011. And what I see among lawmakers is a great deal of fear that if they vote for something perceived as merciful, as somehow soft on crime, that the next time there's a primary, they're going to get challenged by somebody from the right who says, oh, so-and-so voted to let murderers out of prison, right? And we have to be able to stand up to that kind of fear and say, this is the right thing to do. It is the rational thing to do, and ultimately, it's the healing thing to do. Mm. Well, we are coming to a close in our, our conversation today. We've been talking with Jean Bishop, who is the author of an extraordinarily courageous work um, in pre-published, uh, excuse me, pre, um, uh, what do you call it, when it's coming out um, next month. It's coming in March 2015, Change of Heart, Justice, Mercy, and Making Peace with My Sister's Killer. It's available for pre-order now at changeofheart.wjkbooks.com. And Jean, is there anything else that you would like to share with all of us before we close out for the day? I think just the last thing to say is that so many things are said on behalf of all victims' families as if we were a monolith that victims' families need this kind of a harsh, merciless sentence um, so they can have, quote, closure, unquote. And the thing about losing Nancy and Richard and their baby is that the love I had for them will never be closed. It isn't something I want to be closed. I want the memory of them and the, the grief I felt over losing them to motivate me to live in a way that will make the world a better place and honor their memory. And so... I guess I would just say to people, when you are out there having these conversations about restorative justice and about mercy, to never let anyone say, oh, well, the victims want this, because no one speaks for all of us. And there are voices like mine that want to have mercy and restoration. Well, this hour is dedicated to your sister and to her husband. Richard and to their unborn child and the inspiration that carries forward and the courage in you, Jean. Thank you so much for being here with us today on Community Justice Talks. Thank you so much for having me.